Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kuneen. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey, y'all. Welcome to Education Suspended. Jessica Pfeiffer here, one of your co-hosts. In our episode today, we connect with Jen Jackson, who is the principal of AUL Denver. I connect the dots in this episode, but a little bit late. She is the principal of the school where we were at for our first episode of season two. The students that we interviewed were at her school. So I apologize that I did not share that earlier in the recording. First and foremost, I am flying solo with Jackson in this interview. So a big shout out for her dealing with just me. And also we did our best to make the sound work, but I do not have the tech brains that Jamie has. So I apologize if the sound in this episode sounds a little bit different. But that's what you get. You got just Pfeiffer today. All right. So Jackson is amazing. I could sit and talk with her any day about education. We would love it if there was Japanese whiskey involved. But just her passion, you have no choice to get fired up. She has so many little nuggets. I love how she talks about failing up. How do we fail up as a system, as educators? She highlights the need for a deep well of grace. And how does that lens of grace drive her and her school and her teachers. She also talks about the importance of giving that agency to those in her building that serve these kids. So I'm just so grateful she actually joined us during her first week back, which we know is always a crazy week. I really hope you enjoy this and I really hope there's things that you're able to take away. We need you all taking care of yourselves. You come first. You have to be regulated. You have to experience joy to give that joy to your kids. And Jen says that very clearly. So everyone sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Jen Jackson. Good to see you. Good to see you too. I am, uh, my husband is making dinner, so tell me if it's too Okay, I will, I will, I will. Jackson, there's so many places that I want to go with you. Let's do it. <laughs> I know. I don't want to spend the whole time talking about trauma-informed, but I, in full transparency, don't love talking about it with a lot of people because I don't feel people are doing it well. You're, you're probably one of the few that I really want to dive into it because of just the system's perspective that you have on it. But before we go into that, let's we start all of our podcasts the same. So we have listeners introduce themselves, what you do, how you got there, And if you feel so inclined and you wouldn't mind sharing, share your own educational story and how that all fits together. Great. I'm Jennifer Jackson. I'm the principal of AUL Denver, which is an alternative high school on the north side. It's my fifth year here. It is my 12th in education administration, and it is my 25th in schools, which feels crazy. I got to AUL in a really interesting way. I had been working at a school that I loved and had just started to feel incredibly burnt out by the system that I was in. I really loved the school and I loved the people I worked with. And I felt really trapped in this role where I was like, I know the right thing and I can't do it. And I felt blocked. And my coach was like, 
do you want to run an alternative high school? <laughs> I was like, sure. And I showed up. It was deep red on the school performance framework. It was in a really tough spot. Enrollment was really low. And when I think of myself as an educator, I really love, as I call them, beautiful shit shows. Like that's my bread and butter. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, this is, this is my jam. And so stepping in, it was, it was a really difficult spot. When I look at why I got into education, it all really dovetails perfectly. Like it's, it makes sense. I was an incredibly difficult child. <laughs> I was a Stop really- it. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Shocking. I was surprised <laughs> to hear that. Uh, real mouthy. And it was a really tricky teenager and I hated, I hated high school. I barely graduated. I had a 1.8 GPA. My high school and I basically made an agreement that if I walked and got a diploma, I wouldn't come back (laughs) and hated school, but I loved, I loved college and had thought that I would be a lawyer. So I had moved to DC. I was working for a lobbying firm and preparing for law school. And I was also working at a bar with a woman who was a teacher and she ran her bar like a classroom. So like one time somebody was like being really loud and she was like, Hey, I need you to quiet down. You need to say please more often. She was my idol from day one. And at some point she was like, Oh my God, you should be a teacher. (laughs) And we joked about it a lot, but I really didn't love law school and I didn't love lawyers. I didn't love where I was going. And I made a list of everything I could be like, what if I don't do this? What if I choose something else? And my list was rock star, ballerina and teacher. And I have no musical talent and it was pretty old to be a ballerina. And teacher was third in the school that Julie worked at was hiring and they hired a PE and art teacher. I got hired on a Friday and started on a Monday. Stop. Yeah. (laughs) It was crazy. But felt like reconnecting with the parts of high school that worked for me. I had an incredible art teacher, Barb Hirakawa. We're still friends. Felt very seen, very respected, and just really honored as a kid. She's why I graduated high school. And walking into AUL, it was a whole building where I was like, hey, we can just build this. We can build it the way we think it should happen. I appreciate two things about that story. Your relational focus, because... That is the bread and butter of what you do now as an admin and not just for your kids, but I mean, you really lived that for your staff. And I think the other pieces is that you leaned into what could have been an experience that really left a sour taste in your mouth. Yeah. And you essentially said, no, we can do better Mm -hmm. and we're going to do better. And I think that seems to be the crux of where education is now of we have got to do better. And And I feel as though there's more people finally saying that. Yeah, that was sort of the goal. Like when I came into AUL, we were in charter renewal, which I knew, but I'd never worked at a charter school. So I didn't really know what that meant. So I was like, sure, charter renewal, sounds awesome. And I was at a party with somebody who worked in DPS and they were like, yeah, you're in bad shape. (laughs) That school's real red. And what was really fun was because of that conversation, I had gone in being like, we have one year. And if I'm really going to do it, I'm going to do it exactly how I always thought school should be run. So the beautiful part of thinking that you're going to fail is it lets you do really great stuff. If you take the scary part of failing off the table, then you're like, well, we just have one year and what will we do? Yeah. Um, and I think that was 
why AUL has been so successful these last four years and going into our fifth year, those changes were because we weren't scared to fail and because we knew what we were pinning everything on was the right thing, which was the humanization of schools. I wanted to rehumanize a school and I wanted schools to feel very personal and very relational because for all of our work in schools, we work with people. It is the business of serving people, and it can be the most dehumanizing places you work. Yeah. Which is shocking. <laughs> it is. Well, and I'm going to try to channel my, my grainer right now. For you, having been in the field of education for 25 years, being a teacher for a large majority of that, what has been your experience with kind of seeing the system shift? I've been thinking about this a lot, particularly recently. And I think one of the most difficult things is as educators, we know, we know what's going on. We know that the data we are using to measure student success is racially biased. We know that. There's no one you would tell that to who doesn't agree. We know that the data is bad. This is bad data. And we're making huge decisions on bad data. That's crazy. Accidentally using bad data, that's one thing. Knowing the data is bad and continuing to use it feels insane. And so I think what I like seeing recently is that I feel like educators across the board are like, we need to start doing a quiet revolt. We need to start standing up for what is right. And we know this is what is right. I think the job of principals is you need to create these places as much as you can with the power you have. And as a charter leader, I have more freedoms than some traditional schools. And I fully acknowledge that, but I think Principals have some pretty good influence and we've got to start using that to, to do what's right, which is we know how we should be treating kids. Every educator, when we talk about trauma-informed, are like, yeah, that feels right. <laughs> like, I haven't talked to anyone who was like, hey, sometimes when we are teaching these very complex human beings, and we are also complex human beings, things can be tough and we should address that. Like, I've never had a teacher be like, no, <laughs> no, I'm going to hand out this racially biased standardized test. <laughs> like, they, like, they know. Right, right. And so I think the power right now is the conversation is shifting to what are we really doing? And as horrible as the pandemic was, I believe it has pushed us to a point where we have to acknowledge mental health matters, how we treat people matters, and we need to start addressing it. Well, and your focus on humanizing schools, it's it's staff forward. And yes. that's huge. I think I've actually seen more teachers this year who stepped away after last year of education because they knew they deserved better. And yeah. I, you know, I mean, more power to them. That's the part that I, I've thought about a lot. So like, you know, there's all this talk about self-care, like self-care, self-care. I believe in it deeply. But one of the things AUL did is we pay for our staff's medical benefits in full and every family member. And we also allow you to define what is your family member. Like, I don't need a marriage license. I don't need any of it. If you tell me this person is family and they reside in your home with you, we will cover medical benefits for everyone. Because part of self-care is being able to go to the doctor. AUL is working on covering people's co-pays for therapy because we can't, we can't continue to be like, you should take care of yourself, but it should cost you a million dollars. Yeah, I think we've had that the conversation before of just how ironic it is that the, the system has talked for years about self-care, we'll take care of yourself, but it's always in the context of outside of the system, outside of the system. You're doing a really good job of saying that's bullshit. No, we have to take care of you inside of the system. The system's causing this vicarious trauma, yeah. causing this compassion fatigue. And so we're responsible for healing and restoring you so you can keep doing what you do. 
keep going on that because I do think that is one of the, the things that I love. And I remember last year you came and spoke to the graduate class that I teach. Yeah. And you shared your retention rate, right? You just were sharing with the students like what you've done. So share a little bit more about how you've shifted the system for your adults. I think it's a couple of things. One, we have an incredibly high retention rate. But part of that is we really try to honor salaries. I don't ask people to do extra work without stipending them. Is this a labor of love? It is. Is it also labor? It is. This is our job. We have to start paying for it. So part of it is I have a lot of freedom over my budget and we just push everything back. I was in graduate school and they talked about your budget reflects your values. You can say everything you want. I will know what you value and I see where you spend your money. And I think about that every time that my budget, which is transparent and on our website, if you pull it up, our money goes to kids. It goes to the people who are serving them. It goes to pay for the things that our kids need. We don't ask teachers to buy supplies. We don't ask students to buy supplies. If it's free public education, it needs to be free. Now our credit card did get shut down just last week because our science and health teacher ordered 500 condoms and it got flagged as fraud. <laughs> I had to get on the phone with the bank and they're like going through charges and I'm like, that's me, that's me. And they were like 500 prophylactics. And I'm like, yep, that's me. <laughs> oh, geez. But I also think, how are we helping teachers? Like if a teacher's like, I need this and they get it, that feels honoring to who they are as a professional. We trust the people we hire. I feel like our hiring process is hard. AUL makes everyone feel like a first-year teacher. But once you're in there, I think what makes you feel like a first-year teacher sometimes is we're like, how do you think this should go? And if you haven't been asked that in a decade of work, even though you know how it should go, can feel really scary. So I think it's honoring of that. I think we provide a lot of support. We hire an internal guest teacher. So when we say, hey, you should take a personal day, here is the person who's going to cover it. And he knows everything about the school because he yeah, like that. is next door to you. Those things I think matter. Real tangible decisions instead of self-care. We can't just keep telling teachers self-care and be mm -hmm. like, I hope you can find a yoga class that you can afford after you pay for your health insurance. Outside of school. Outside of school. In your experience, what is, what is the hardest part of giving agency back to your teachers? Oh, as a control freak myself, it is very difficult to be like, there you go. <laughs> you know, and we have definitely had some, um, I've had some good debates with teachers. I've definitely had some things where I'm like, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> but I have really believed in the idea of failing up. We have to try things to see if it happens and that we have to show students that failure can happen and that you really do learn from it. So we're tiptoeing around and I, and I opened up talking about trauma-informed mm -hmm. and saying that I feel very comfortable having a conversation about trauma-informed because I feel like you truly get it. From your perspective, what does trauma-informed education mean? At the, at the very core, it is treating humans like humans. When we first started, it is the idea that it is on us of how we react to situations. And when I say us, I mean the adults. It is on adults to create spaces for kids where kids can come in wherever they're at and get to the next point we want them to go. It's really that simple for us. And I, I think when we started Trauma-Informed at Cole and then took it to AUL, the, the thing about getting it to AUL was we started with a whole staff where I was like, we weren't adding it in. This was how we started. This is our, our core of what we believe. And this is how we're going to go forward. And it put it back on A, that 
it is not an accident when things go well. <laughs> I think sometimes teachers, they can talk forever about what went wrong. They can be like, and then I did this wrong and I did this wrong, but then lessons go beautifully. And I'm like, well, what'd you do? And they're like, oh yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's just as much your responsibility. Great lessons take practice too. And I think the science of understanding, like this is how our brain works and this is how somebody is reacting, takes all the personalization out of behaviors. And that was the most powerful thing that I've seen happen for teachers. It is science. This is science. And once you understand the science, then you can adjust for it. Then it's not a mystery. You know why this child is acting this way. You know why this student stormed out. And it allows for deep wells of grace. And I think the more grace we add into society right now, the better. Yeah, the deep wells of grace. Excuse me while I write that down. <laughs> I don't have anyone else taking notes with me today. <laughs> Jeez. How did you take that theme of deep wells of grace and then move it to the kids? from that relational perspective? It was probably week two. First of all, we got rid of walkie-talkies. Why do we have walkie-talkies in school? There's nothing that's gonna set a kid off more if you're like, uh, I need support in 104. That kid in 104 is <laughs> gonna start flipping tape and it's like, boop, boop. <laughs> the kid in 104 is like, that's me, that's me. 10-4, 10-4. <laughs> are we like, airline attendants? Like, what are we doing? So we got rid of those. And a teacher had texted, hey, there's a student and his phone is on at full blast. I'm like, great. So I open the door and I say his name. I'm like, hey, can you come see me? And he starts cursing as soon as he stands up, just at me, crossing the room. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And he gets into the hall. We shut the door. And I was like, hey, buddy, first of all, I want to apologize because I realize that you have been identified as GT and, you know, it's week two and we haven't really adjusted for you. So you're probably pretty bored. And we both stood there and he goes, yeah. And I'm like, I know it's frustrating. If you wouldn't mind giving us a little grace while we catch up, that would be awesome. Also, could you turn off your phone? Cause that would be really helpful. And he goes, okay. And it was so shocking to him because we both, he and I had templates of principal student relationships. When a student is not following directions, he was real ready to play out that scenario. Like he's like, I know how this is going to go and I'm going to get the upper hand first. And all I could think of is, and I don't like being cursed at, <laughs> but as he was walking towards me, my thought was, I either go in on him for this and we never see this kid again, or we have a conversation and he goes back to class. What is my real goal? And my real goal is not to win power struggles with 17 year old because I won't win. I think in that moment I was, yeah, this works. And what was nice for the teacher was he walked back in and he was like, sorry, miss. And she's like, okay. Mm -hmm. And he got back to work. Mm -hmm. And I think these times of success, not that it's always easy, but these times of success for teachers where they were like, they could feel honored in the work and they could continue to make these connections with kids. And that isn't to say that there's not consequences. And I think that is one of the things that people think about when they hear trauma-informed, they're like, so kids get to do whatever they want? Yes, the children do whatever they want. Anarchy. Just run amok. It isn't lack of consequences. Consequences are also important. Guidelines are important. Boundaries are really important, particularly for students in trauma. It is that we also have to remember that when you are in a heightened state, those boundaries and consequences have no meaning. Like a consequence given to him right then would be the least impactful thing I could have done. There was a consequence later, but in that moment, it was a chance for both of us to say, I really want you here and you probably really want it. 
And I think it leads to questioning. You know, we had a student wearing a hoodie today that had some pretty serious gang stuff on it. And it had a picture of a kid. And I was like, hey, we got to talk about this. And I'm like, what is going on? And it was a friend he lost. He was wearing the hoodie to honor him. And I was like, hey, I want you to be able to feel that. And I want everyone else in the building to feel safe. And he's like, I'm going to put tape over this part. And then the other kid was like, I'm going to button up my jacket. I want to keep the hoodie on, but I'm going to button up the jacket. And I'm like, I want you to be able to honor your friend, but I want everyone else in the building to feel safe as well. The other option would have been take off the hoodie, which was my first instinct when I saw it. <laughs> but the questioning and allowing that to open up, A, that student then feels respected and heard in a time when he really needs to be. And it was a way for us to have a conversation of like, hey, you can honor who you are, but you can also do it in a way that doesn't make other people feel uncomfortable. You see the kids. Mm -hmm. And I realized I didn't connect the dots, but I should have told everyone that's listening that the students that we interviewed at the beginning of season two are the students from your school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's information that would have been helpful. And that theme came up. I remember those students were phenomenal. And that, that theme of, I am seen here. All of me is seen. And for some of them, you could even tell that they, they had been in a system so long that didn't see them that they had actually stopped seeing themselves. A hundred percent. One of the things I think about a lot, particularly in high schools, is like, they're just kids. They're just kids. Our first day of school, we played the game where you have to keep the balloon up, like balloon volleyball. I hate balloons. I just want to say that. Why? I hate balloons. Because of, because of the environment or just because you don't like them? <laughs> because I just don't like them. Not that I don't like the environment, but <laughs> we could have a whole episode on my anxiety with balloons. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about them now, but keep going. Okay, we're playing balloon volleyball. So we're playing balloon volleyball and I love metaphors and I love inspirational speeches. I was like, so we have to keep it up. It's easy to keep up one. Then teachers started blowing up balloons and throwing it into the group. And it's a lot harder to keep them up. And so it was a whole metaphor of like how we have to work together. And it was great. It was a good story. But the funniest part was kids like diving over each other to keep balloons up and the kids who were too cool to keep the balloons up and like all of this. The memory and realization that I always try to keep in my heart is kids are kids. Are kids. A gang-involved kid is a kid. The word kid is still in that name. And they need to be treated as such. Like they mm -hmm. need to be honored as such. Like they are kids. And that means they need goofy adults who love them. That's what makes it work. And I think that's what makes AUL work is you can come with all sorts of things. You can have been kicked out of lots of schools. You can have come from a situation where you were incarcerated. You can be experiencing homelessness. You can have all of these things. And at some point during your day, somebody is going to honor the fact that you are also just 15. And being 15 is weird and goofy. And you can be all those things. And I think sometimes we forget that. So kids get in trouble and we forget that they also like to watercolor. Just two years ago, I was working with a school on the, on the West Coast and talking about some fun that these high school teachers would have with their students. And one of the mm -hmm. teachers, he was teaching science. He goes, I play hot potato with my kids. <laughs> He didn't know what to do. He goes, I just brought a potato in the glass. <laughs> now they, they just want to play it all the time. <laughs> yes. Like, oh. yes. We give out paper plate awards. And if you get two paper plates, there is a song that the whole school will sing, which is basically they got two paper plates. <laughs> it's like refrained over and over. The joy that these students have for these dumb paper plates. It's a literal paper plate with their name on it. <laughs> And like a little something about why they were awarded it. We're on year five and I've never seen a paper plate thrown away. I've seen them tucked into backpacks. I've seen them put in cars. I've seen them carried home. When we were in remote time, 
we were in a kid's room, you know, like on Zoom, and he had his paper plates tacked up on his wall. They're kids and they like kids stuff. My worry with education is that we forget that joy has to be a core element of learning and joy is a core part of being trauma-informed. We have to remember that this work should be fun. The work should be serious. We should not be. I mean, I've seen you all do it, but what strategies do you use as a system with your staff to ensure that when you are seeing kids, that none of these students fall through the crack? My favorite thing we do is it's called the draft. So what we do is we write every kid's name in the school on an individual card. So like every kid's name's on this card. We lay them all out on tables and the whole staff stands around and we do it like a draft, like a NFL draft. And we put questions up on the board. So like a student who will text you if they're having an issue and people will grab names. Somebody who will eat lunch in your room, grab names. You know this student will come to you if they're struggling in your class or in another class. Go, go, go. I think we usually do about seven to 10 rounds depending on the groups. And then there's a group of kids that are left. And then what we do is we just divide them up. And so our first year, I picked the student, Malia. She will love that I'm telling the story because it's her favorite thing. So I picked Malia. So I had this note card that said Malia. And she was often late, egregiously late, 45 minutes late, and was, was difficult to connect with. And so I had her name. And that next day I was like, went and found her. And I was like, hey, you never come to first period. And she was like, yes, miss, because I, I drive my siblings to school. And I don't think that the before care staff is qualified as much as I would like them to be. And I really trust their teachers. So I am not willing to send them into school until they go to their teacher. How do you argue with that? Okay, well, I will change your schedule and you will be my office assistant for first period. And then we can give you a little flexibility of when come in. She was like, great. She always made sure that my desk was clean. She would write little sticky notes to remind me of meetings and stuff. She was great. She graduated last year. She just went through a dental program, texted me in her cap and gown. And on the day she was graduating from AUL, she was in my office, of course, helping me organize. Because <laughs> that's what she did. <laughs> and uh, so she's like organizing stuff. And her note card was stuck in a bookcase. And she's like, miss, you have my name. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I picked you. And she goes, oh, cute. <laughs> but I think about the power of that note card less for Malia and more for me. Instead of being like, you are always late and I'm going to drop your first period and I'm going to do all of these things. It forced me to be like, why are you late? And the level I found out with that question and the level of trust Malia found when somebody finally asked her. We talk about the cycle of learning and you're doing that at a, at a personal level. You and your staff maintain this level of constant curiosity about the kids' lives, which innately allows you to have that intrinsic pleasurable moments with these kids. And if you didn't have that genuine curiosity about their lives, them as humans, I don't think you'd get there. I don't think you'd yeah. get there. I think that's true. But I also think schools have to, you have to name that as something that you value. Well, you don't just name it. You do that for the adults so that they can do that for the kids. That's the piece yeah. that I'm harping on so much right now that I'm getting calls from friends in different districts and different states, people that I've worked with before. And that's how we kind of began this. We have got to get, as the adults, what we're expected to give to our students. So we've yeah. got to get joy. We've got to get curiosity. We've got to get regulation. We've got to get all of it. 
in my annual reviews at every school I've been at, I've gotten some tough feedback. There are definitely people who are not fans, you know, but the one thing that has been consistent through all of it is that I am students first, that my decisions are students-based. That is at the forefront. And I always feel really good about that. The shift I think that I made more clear at AUL was naming that if I'm students first, that means I have to champion teachers. That is my job. If I believe students deserve the best, then my teachers deserve the best. If I am telling you, I need you to be regulated so you can serve students who are in active trauma, then I have to make sure that I'm not doing things that disregulate you and that I am blocking you from as much as I can that I'm honoring you as a professional, but I'm also honoring you as a person. Everyone's like, it's, it's shocking teachers are quitting. I'm like, it is shocking they didn't quit sooner. Yeah. And I think it is a quiet revolt, but these are not people who don't care about kids. These are people who care so deeply about kids that they can no longer work in systems that they feel like don't honor them. Amen. I think that's fair. It's not that we have a teacher shortage. We have plenty of teachers. They're just stepping yeah. away because they know better. We have plenty of teachers. AUL had 100% retention of teachers who were invited back. And so I think all of those things happen not on accident. I think AUL is a difficult school, like it is, is challenging. We are imperfect, but I think we humanize being a teacher. You've said before, that's the data that matters. You wanna see data that's gonna impact student success. The higher your teacher retention rate, the better your student success. Yes, there's huge data. You know, when I started in DC and I started in a time of no excuses, very burn and churn, it was very accepted. You're going to work till you burn out and then you'll go somewhere else. It's just how we spoke about teachers, which is insane. There's real value and there's value for students walking in and saying, you came back, I came back and you came back. We're back together. And the joy our kids feel in having those moments is great. I've never really thought about that of what would be the psychological impact on students coming back, let's just talk elementary or high school, right? Yeah. High school, four years in a row. Four years and, in a row. And every year having, I mean, a large percent of new staff in your building. What's that psychological impact? I'm going to say they haven't researched it, but they should. <laughs> when I started is a principal in DPS. The statistic I heard, I didn't verify it, was that the average principal life is 18 months. They're like, that's crazy. And it feels accurate. Interesting. What does that do for teachers? What does that do yeah. for students? And then how can we get better at turnover? How are we not training people up for this? And how are we not fighting to keep teachers? When people are like, we have to be trauma-informed, I'm like, well, we should probably stop traumatizing educators. That'd be a great start. Step A. <laughs> Don't dream too big, but step A. I'm trying to recognize our time here and know that it is your first week of school. And so we need to put you, <laughs> need to, put you to bed early. Yes, definitely. But the other piece that I respect so much about you is not just the fact that you see the students in your building for who they are, your system sees the students in, in their building for who they are, but you also have this huge advocacy side of you and your teachers, whether they're your students or not, are fighting for all the marginalized kids. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and how your school views its role in changing this, this archaic system. I think the biggest thing was when I started, we got rid of the school resource officer. So we had a school resource officer and it was 35, 40,000. 
and we didn't bring them back. And I took that money and put it into mental health, which is obviously better. And since then, AUL has been pretty vocal about getting cops out of schools. And ever since Columbine, which was the high school I attended, the increase of school resource officers, which was to stop school shootings, has not stopped school shootings. What it has done is increased the low-level ticketing of brown and black students significantly. And that's where it starts as students get involved in court in school. And then going to taking that further was starting to go to court with our students. A kid would go to court and we would go with them. And the first time I was like, why isn't anyone else here? <laughs> and the amount of kids who are just going through this terrifying system. I mean, court systems are terrifying for all of us. Going through these terrifying systems alone without advocacy. We had a situation where we had brothers who were both on charges, same charge, were up in front of a judge. One of them went to our school. So we stood up for him. He got up and we were like, he is a leader. Here is a stack of letters from teachers who believe in him. Here are all the things he does. I'm the principal. Here's his social studies teacher. And he got off probation. And his brother who went up, who was not in, currently in a school, got extended time and then yelled at. And it was, it was back to back. And I think about that moment all of the time of how do you negotiate these systems on your own? And why are schools not all the time fighting for these kids? Every school should be at court with their kid. The second a kid is in any sort of situation where they're incarcerated is traumatizing to a degree we can't even comprehend of what it is doing. Mm -hmm. And as educators, we need to be fighting against the criminalization of students. That's, a, that's our job. When I think about what is my role, it is to end the school to prison pipeline. But ideally, I don't think we should have juvenile incarceration facilities. I think we should all be abolitionists. And if we're not, I don't think we're really being educators. If you go into any juvenile detention facility, it is not representational of any district you are in, ever. So again, we're talking about implicitly racist systems that we all know are implicitly racist. So why are we not working our asses off to end them? And so that's our goal is to keep kids out of jail, to bring kids who have been incarcerated in any way and help them not go through that again and really fight for the idea that very wealthy white children don't have that same experience. How does a parent take off work? to then go to these court cases to advocate for their child, sometimes in languages they don't speak. And if we don't start fighting those systems, if we as a school don't start fighting that system, then we don't really believe in what we're saying, which is that every kid deserves the right to education. We have to start humanizing kids because the quicker we dehumanize them, easier it is for us to feel like these incarceration systems are palpable. So, we have a thing where we start to interview our students when we find out they have a court case. And our first question is, when did you get in trouble for the first time at school? And it is kindergarten, is the average age. Kinder, first yeah. grade. Kindergarten or first grade, they're five. One of the reasons I think AUL is so successful for our teachers is because our teachers really do get to see that we are fighting for the students in our building and the students outside of our building. And there's something that is really easy to buy into, which is disrupting systems, we have to be recklessly optimistic and we have to be disruptively joyful. And I think that's what education needs. Well, I can't think of a person doing better work than you. I mean, I know they're out there, we're going to find them, but you, you live it 
yeah, it is heartbreaking to think of the the joy ending for a five-year-old, even before they've got going in schools. So sad. Well, Jackson, I can't thank you enough for staying up on a school night to do this. I'm sorry that you got stuck with just me. I I liked it. I thought it was lovely. I know. I'm like, it's perfect that it's you. I was like, if it was any other guest, I was like, they would just be like, what the... But luckily, you know me. I always say meeting you that time in Cole and seeing you present, I was like, this is this is it. This is what I want to do. Oh. Um, and I just think how magical it is that this work is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I just want everyone to I want everyone to jump on board. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it is so vital to the next steps in education. Yeah. Well, keep fighting the fight. Take care of yourself this school year. Thank um, you. And say thank you to all your teachers. Sounds great. Thanks for having us. All right. Bye. Bye.